glorious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. It was a good day already. Amen. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can look on with someone next to you, but we will be looking this morning at Philippians 1, verse 27. If you've been with us over the past few weeks as we've been walking through the book of Philippians, which is going to be our normal habit here, our normal habit will be to walk through books of the Bible, and we'll take breaks every once in a while to address various issues and topics, but as a primary rule, we're going to be walking through books of the Bible, rotating from Old Testament to New Testament. And so as we've been walking through it, we find ourselves at a little bit of a, a transition moment in the book of Philippians. Up to this point, Paul is writing to this church that he planted about 10 years before this moment, the church that he loves, the church that he has deep affection for, and he is thanking them for their support of him. No one supported this, uh, Paul's ministry more than this church did. He's praying for them, and then he's giving them really what they wanted in the first place. They wanted to report on how Paul is doing. So everything from verse 12 to verse 26 is Paul saying, well, here's how I'm doing. Let me tell you what's going on. I'm in prison. Let me tell you, God is working and moving and uh, my ambitions to see Christ's kingdom advance and his name exalted have not been hindered by my circumstances. And Paul is deeply encouraging us by his own attitude and his own report. When we get to verse 27, we do come to a transition because for the very first time, Paul, instead of talking about himself and what he's doing, and instead of just talking about his thanksgiving for them, he begins to now exhort them. He begins to now speak directly to them. You might remember that the occasion of this letter is that Paul's in prison, and the Philippian church sent a church member named Epaphroditus to visit Paul in prison, not only to give him a gift and see how he's doing, but because there were some problems in the Philippian church. This is hard to believe, I know, but there was a church with people that weren't getting along. It tells us in chapter four, there was a couple of old ladies that were not getting along, and Paul calls them out by name, and uh, this really stopped in the first century. This has never happened since, but uh, there were some people who are not getting along, and uh, so Paul's calling them out. And so the whole point of this letter is Paul saying, listen, I love you. I believe that he who began a good work in you is going to complete it. I'm excited about this, but you guys have got to get united for the sake of the gospel. And that is why I've told you from the beginning, and I will continue to tell you, that the key verse in all of the book of Philippians is the one that we see this morning, Philippians 1:27. If you're there in Philippians 1, say amen. 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 Let's look at verse 27. Paul says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, I believe that Every single verse in the book of Philippians, you can take and you can draw a line from that verse directly to the end of verse 27 when he simply says this, I want to make sure that you've got one mind and you're striving side by side for the gospel. That's what the church does. They're united in their common belief in the gospel and desire to see it advanced. And the enemy wants to do anything he can to distract us from that. One of the ways he often distracts us is through internal conflict. Paul is saying, get together, get one mind, and be together for the gospel. 
Next week, we're going to look at the end of verse 27 all the way through the end of the chapter. We'll complete chapter 1, Lord willing, next week. But this morning, I want to look at the first part of verse 27. And it's not my normal habit to just preach one phrase. But I'm a little bit captured by this phrase in verse 27 because of the first word. The first word is only. I say, well, that doesn't seem so significant, but the reality is it it is significant. What Paul is saying is he's using a word that really means, now, just one thing I need you to know. Above everything else. Let nothing get in the way of this. Let nothing distract you from this. So this word only is really Paul saying, listen, there is one thing that you've got to get. And he gives his first command in the entire book. He says, if you forget everything else, remember this one thing. Only walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. One sentence, which Paul seems to think is all-encompassing. And really, in many ways, it is one sentence that defines the Christian life. We're going to talk about this a lot in the following weeks, particularly getting into chapters 2 and chapters 3, that we seem to get a lot of information in the church on how to get saved, but not a lot of information on how to be saved, how to live like a believer in Jesus Christ. And so what this verse is saying is, listen, what does this look like? What it looks like is living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And Paul takes one phrase as an all-encompassing statement to help us to understand what it means to walk with Jesus Christ. Now, this is not unique to Philippians chapter 1. Matter of fact, I was visiting one of our Sunday school classes this morning. I said, what are you studying this morning? And they said, Ephesians 4. And in Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Five times, in five different letters, Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, for Paul, this is a significant statement. What he's simply saying is this. I, I want you to think about the gospel, and I want you to think about your life, And I want you to ask yourself this question. Does your life give evidence that you've actually believed the gospel of Jesus Christ? When you think about the gospel and you think about your life, do those two things go together? Because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, there should be something in your outward life that gives a reflection of the truth of the gospel. That's what Paul's getting. He's saying your life and the gospel, those two things go together. Now, it's important for us to understand that that Paul is not simply saying, church, I need you to do better. I need you to be better. Many of us, uh, maybe even were turned off to Christianity in times in our lives because we were in a church in which we felt like all that was ever been told to us is do this and do this and be better and be better. And it was simply always kind of heaping on us more pressure to be something that we're not. What I would say is this. Paul is actually saying the opposite of that. He's not saying, I want you to be something you're not. He's saying, I want you to be who you actually are. This is the significance of combining our manner of life with the gospel because the message of the gospel is telling us that God has changed who we are so that we might live in a different way. Paul is simply calling them to live out the reality of who they already are as believers in Jesus Christ. 
mean, it kind of reminds me of the man who, who went to the psychiatrist and he said, uh, doctor, I don't really know how to explain this, but sometimes I feel like I'm a dog. Psychiatrist says, well, that's ridiculous. You're obviously not a dog. He goes, I know that now. I'm just telling you there are times in my life, like on a day-to-day basis, in which I think I'm a dog. The doctor says, well, well, okay, have a seat on the couch and we'll talk about it. The man said, well, I'm sorry, I'm not allowed on the furniture. <laughs> There's a man who was confused about who he was, right? And the truth is, a man should be a man, a woman should be a woman, a dog should be a dog. What Paul is saying is this. You're a Christian. That's, that's who you are. Like you have been redefined by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are a Christian. Now, just allow the life that has been placed inside of you through your intimate relationship with Jesus Christ to be evident outside of you. Christianity is, out, is inside out. It is being overdoing. Before it ever tells you to do something, It tells you you must first become something. And some of you have tried so hard to please the Lord by reforming the way that you live in hopes that maybe God will be pleased with you by the things you're doing. That is the opposite message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is you have nothing to offer the Lord except your broken self. Give that to him. He will make you into something new and then his life will be lived through you. That's Christianity but it really does come out of a proper understanding of the gospel. I mean, we've talked about this a lot, but if you want to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, you have to understand how the gospel really transforms you. And I think that's the the whole point of the beginning of verse 27. Paul is, is really saying that the gospel changes how we live because it transforms who we are. The gospel changes how we live because it transforms who we are. Now, let's just let's think about this together a little bit this morning. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them so that they might know him and walk with him and enjoy him. He has created all of us that we might have a relationship with God. And it is only in that relationship in which life begins to make sense because we were created by him and for him. And God said to Adam and Eve, if you sin, you will surely die. And so Adam and Eve sin. They chose to, instead of walking under the authority of God, to be their own boss, which is all sin is. It is rebelling against the authority of God. And in so doing, they died. You say, well, Josh, I'm not sure that's true. Adam lived about 900 years later than this. Well, that is true. But two things happened in that moment that they sinned. First, the reality of physical death entered into the world, which did not exist before that. And even worse than that, In a very real way, something inside Adam and Eve actually died. That they no longer had intimacy with God. This is the reason that the moment they sinned, they ran away in shame and covered themselves and hid from God. Why? Because something in them died. And because all of us are born children of Adam, we are all born dead. Romans chapter 3 is very clear on this. Ephesians chapter 2 is very clear on this. 1 Corinthians 2 is very clear on this. That when we are born, every single person is born spiritually dead. Not just kind of dead. Not just asleep. 
Ephesians 2 says, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, I've I've talked about this a little bit, and and you'll hear this. It it seems to be uh, really a trend in these days, and it's not a bad trend, that when we speak about sin, we speak of it in terms of brokenness. And I think that's good, because it takes this word sin, which seems to be hard to understand, and puts it in a term that we can all understand, and that is this. I think all of us would say, life is broken. Can we agree on that? Our political system is broken. Marriages are broken. Our work lives are broken. We're just, we're broken people. It just, like nothing seems to be the way that it's supposed to be. And the brokenness is a consequence of sin. Whenever we choose to rebel against God and his authority, we end up broken. And although I love that and I think it's the right way to talk about it, I do fear that in all of our talks about brokenness, we might actually make sin seem to be less than it is. Yes, the consequence of sin is brokenness, but the issue is not simply that we're broken. The issue is is that we're dead. This is very important because if you're going to have a life with Jesus, you have to start by realizing you have no life without Jesus, that you are spiritually dead. This is why when Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John 3 and says, what can I do to be saved? Then Jesus says, you must be born again. And, you know, from a guy who'd never heard that before, and we're familiar with that, he literally says, well, how am I to go back into my mother's womb? And you just want to go, ah, oh, like you don't even want to, that well, that's a weird thing to say. And he, he says, I mean, think about hearing that for the first time. You, well, you have to be born again. And Jesus says, no, 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 that which is the flesh is flesh, and that which is the spirit is spirit. You've got flesh, you don't have spirit. If you want to really be saved, you have to be born in the spirit. Meaning, you were dead. So Nicodemus, the goal is not to just make yourself a better person. Something has to come alive inside of you. And when you go to Romans 6 and you talk about how to fight sin, the whole case that Paul is making is this. You, you once were dead, but now you've been made alive. So when you sin, why would you go once again into death when you are now alive in Jesus Christ? I mean, it makes sin seem ridiculous. Brokenness in death is what I got. Over here with Jesus, I get wholeness in life, but yet we still choose to walk in sin, putting ourselves back in further death and brokenness. So the whole case that Paul makes throughout his writings is that when we come to know Jesus Christ, listen to this, when you trust in Jesus Christ as the payment for your sins, when you stop trying to be good enough and you realize that only Jesus is good enough and you accept his death as the payment for your sins and his life as what God demands credited to your account and you choose to follow him, what happens is this, is that the very life of God comes to live inside of you. That you are born again. This is why 2 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Not a better person, a new creation. There's literally, literally at the moment that you become a Christian, there's a complete newness inside of you. You're a new person. It is as Colossians 1 says, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Listen to this. Jesus did not simply die to make you better. He died to make you 
new. She didn't die to make you better. Oprah can make you better. That's debatable. It's a bad illustration. A lot of people can make you better. You can go to the bookstore and get a number of self-help books that will make you better. Jesus did not come to make you better. He came to make you new. So this is getting to the heart of what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, above all else, recognize that there is a new life that is inside of you. Now, let the life outside of you be a reflection of the life that is in you. Let the reality of who you are transform the way that you live. Live from the inside out. We're not working to please him. If you're a believer, listen, he's pleased. He's pleased. Not because of your goodness, but because of Christ's goodness credited to your account. He's pleased with you. It is not living to make God happy. It is living because we have become new. And Paul has the most incredible way of explaining this in Philippians 1. You see, Philippi was a Roman colony. What that means is, is it wasn't in Rome, but it was a part of Rome. It had been colonized by Rome. That doesn't sound like a big deal to us, but in this time when Rome was ruling the world, it was a big deal to live in a place that was considered a part of Rome. So they received all of the benefits of being Roman citizens. All of the protection, very big deal, of being Roman citizens. All of the wealth of being Roman citizens. All of the freedom to travel wherever they wanted to because they were Roman citizens. This is a very big deal. You might remember when Paul was put in prison and he said he was a Roman citizen. Well, everybody else was afraid that they had touched a Roman citizen. So they were proud of their citizenship. Like this, is, this is deep in their DNA. We are proud to be citizens of Rome. And they walked like citizens of Rome. And they acted like citizens of Rome. There was a just something about them because they knew where they were from and it meant something. So do you realize that Paul uses that exact same idea to try to communicate to us what's actually happening here? Look at that little phrase there. Only let your manner of life be. Six words. Let your manner of life be. One word in the Greek. There is absolutely no English equivalent for this word. And so they just put, let your manner of life be. But that Greek word there is where we get our word, politics. It was a political word, so we hear it, and it doesn't bring up any political connotations. When they heard it, they knew exactly what it meant, because the word given there is a word they would have used referring to the fact that they were Roman citizens. And the word actually means this, behave like a citizen. That's what it says. I mean, the, only trans, the, the real translation would be only this, this one thing. Don't forget this. Behave like a citizen worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, well, what does being a citizen and the gospel have to do with one another? Well, everything, because Colossians 1 says that when we come to believe the gospel, it says we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. So, so not only have you changed inside, but your citizenship has changed. So in the same way for the Philippians, they kind of walked with a little bit of confidence because they were citizens of Rome. 
they acted in a certain way because they were citizens of Rome, what Paul is saying is, do you realize that you are citizens of the kingdom of God? Now, therefore, start acting like you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. If you turn over a page to Philippians 3.20, look at this. It is the noun usage of this same word, the verbal usage is what is in chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says this, but our citizenship is in heaven. That word citizenship is the exact same word used in 127. Act like a citizen. Why? Because you are. You have become a citizen of the kingdom of God. All the rights and all the privileges and all the protections and all of the benefits are yours. So act like a citizen of the kingdom. You say, well, it seems a little abstract. How, how do you act like a citizen of the kingdom? Well, l- let me give you a few ways that you can act like a citizen of the kingdom. The first one is this. If you are a citizen of the kingdom, live like Christ is your king. Write that down. If you're a citizen of the kingdom, live like Christ is your king. What does a kingdom need? A kingdom needs a king. Who's the king of this kingdom? Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. All authority belongs to him. And what it means to become a Christian, listen carefully, is not simply to pray a prayer and say, Jesus, I believe in you. What it means to become a Christian is to make Jesus Christ your Lord. You know that word Lord we use a lot. In the Greek, it was used much more casually because they would use it to refer to an emperor or they would use it to refer uh, to uh, an employer or a slave owner. It simply meant boss. Who's the boss? When I share the gospel with children, I like to talk in terms like this. The question is, who's your boss? Who's calling the shots? You know, I, I think I went a little too far on this because when I've had times when I've told my children something to do, they would say, well, you're not the boss. God's the boss. And my response is, well, God made me the boss of you. So I answer to God. You answer to me. It does work that way. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're right. God's the boss. But God's just told me to be the boss on his behalf, right? That's how it works. And uh, it's not always an easy concept. But the truth is, is that that's what it means to be a Christian. God's calling the shots. Like, now I'm... I'm I'm asking Jesus how to spend my money. I'm asking Jesus where I go and, and what I do. He's, he's now the boss. He's the Lord. I mean, Paul makes that clear in Philippians 2. He says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He, he's the boss. And so as a kingdom, a, a citizen of the kingdom, what Paul is saying is one of the ways you do that. And, and, and live in a manner worthy of the gospel is live in such a way that Jesus Christ is your Lord. Listen to him. You do that here. You listen to him. You, you follow him when he says to do something. You obey him. You trust him. You let him lead. You let him rule your life. 
But there's two sides of this. There's, there's part of it, which is this, this idea of submission. I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. And so I'm literally getting up in the morning, and I'm, I'm saying, Lord, I, I want you to be the Lord today. I want to follow you. And then five minutes after you do that, you've already forgotten, and you do it again. Lord, I, I want you to be the Lord of my life. And you're dealing with your budget, and you look at your money, and you say, Lord, I, I want you to be the Lord of, of my finances. I want you, you're looking at your children's schedule, your family schedule. Lord, I want you to be the Lord of this. Like, I... I'm going to ask you, what do you want to do? And how do we navigate this situation? So there's that side. The other side is that because he is your king, it means that you should rejoice in the freedom and the victory that you have in Christ. Because in the end, there's only one kingdom that remains. It's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Christ wins when everyone else loses. There is one king that will remain. He is the king of all kings, and he's your king. And you're on his side, so you do walk with a little bit of confidence. You do walk with a little bit of assurance and awareness of his protection that nothing can touch you without going first through the king. That he is with you and he is on your side, so start living believer, not defeated, but victorious, submissive to Christ, as if he is your king, listen, because he is, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. So you live like Christ is your king. Now, another way you do this is you live like heaven is your home. Write that down. You live like Christ is your king, and you live like heaven is your home. I told you in chapter 3, it's the same word used there. Look at chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Paul is talking about some people who are walking as enemies of the cross. He says this, Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Well, what does it look like to be an enemy of the cross? Well, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory, they glory in their shame. The things they should be ashamed of, they actually rejoice in. Their mind, listen, their minds are set on earthly things. But, that's not us, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. What he's saying is this, he's saying, listen, there are people who live like citizens of the earth. They're motivated by their appetites. Uh, They're not submissive to the Lord. They are simply storing up for themselves treasures on earth. But that's not us. No, our citizenship is in heaven. Exact same word to say that one of the ways we live in a manner worthy of the gospel is to live, listen, like this is not our home. You want to stand out as a follower of Jesus Christ Make your greatest investment in the next life, not in this one. You know, I uh, travel uh, often, not as much as I I used to, but from time to time I go and travel and speak at various places, and uh, I've got really refined taste. You may know that about me, and because of that, when I travel, I love a Hampton Inn. I've stayed at some nice hotels. I've stayed at a few Ritz-Carlton's in my time, but I just got to tell you, there is nothing that beats a good Hampton Inn. I don't know if you've been to a Hampton Inn. It's a great place to stay. I'm not getting paid for this. I just, <laughs> I'm just telling you, I, I like a good Hampton Inn. And, and there's a lot of reasons I like a Hampton Inn, but I, I think one, one of the reasons I like the Hampton Inn the most is because of the waffles. 
You know what I'm talking about. So here's the deal. This is crazy. You stay at a Ritz-Carlton and you want a waffle, 20 bucks. You stay at a Hampton Inn, you want a waffle, zero bucks. You want two waffles, same price. You want 10 waffles, same price. You want to show up at six and eat waffles till 10, same price. That's some good stuff. If you, if you want them a little bit crispier, you, you make them crispier. If you, if you want them a little gooier like they should be, you just take them out a little. You're in control of the waffle. Like everything about this is incredible. So I love, I love a good Hampton Inn. Um, but you know, when I go to a Hampton Inn, as much as I love it, it's, it's not home. You know, the bed doesn't feel like home. The TV's not like it's at home. The, the noise is very different than it is at home. Much quieter, actually. But, you know, think, wouldn't it be ridiculous if I, if I got into my Hampton Inn and I, I got in my bed and I just thought, man, well, I tell you, this just doesn't feel like my bed at home. And I called Andrew and I said, hey, honey, would you go pull back the sheets on our bed and see what kind of mattress it is? And uh, she tells me and then I call the mattress world or mattress firm or mattress universe, whatever it is. And I say, hey, listen, I, I need you to deliver as quickly as you can that exact mattress to the Hampton Inn. Well, sir, I'm sorry, we don't do that. Well, I need, you, I need you to get it here as quickly as you can. And So they bring a mattress over, and then I get in the mattress, and I look at the TV, and I think, boy, this TV isn't like the one I want at home. I don't know why it is. Every hotel TV takes forever to change the channels. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. But I, I, I can't do this. I don't have the patience. So I can't wait a half a second to see the next channel. That just doesn't work. So I call Andrew. I say, what's the kind of our TV? And I get the exact TV delivered. And then I go to the coffee maker, and it's one of those disgusting coffee makers, the one little, this is the negative, I'll be honest, to the Hampton Inn. Uh, just a really gross coffee maker. You have no idea what that coffee maker's been through and if it's ever been washed. And then you have seen the 48-hour special and what people do to the coffee cups. And so anyway, you just... So I get a new coffee maker, and then at the end of the day, I've spent about $5,000 making this feel like home, and I'm going to check out tomorrow. Now, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, anybody who did that, you would say, that's insane. I just think sometimes the Lord looks at us and says, why, why are you making this home? I don't think there's anything wrong to have a house. Andrew and I have a, a nice house. We have some nice things, but I just... I just think the Lord is looking at us saying, listen, can you just be reminded that the time that you spend here on earth is very quick and eternity is very long. Invest in eternity. Don't put all of your resources here. Some of you are spending every penny you have on yourself and not investing in eternity. You've made some foolish decisions. You've gotten yourself so tied up financially you can't invest in the kingdom of God. And the truth is, is you are not storing anything up for the next life. And one of the ways that we live like we're citizens of the kingdom is to live like our home is there. Invest in things that are eternal. Share the gospel with someone. Invest in someone spiritually. Make spiritual investments. That's kind of what I'm trying to communicate to the families up here. Give your kids good things. That's great. But the best thing you can give them is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Invest in them eternally. Make an investment in people. Make an investment in the church. Make an investment in getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. Live like heaven is your home and Christ is your king. There's just one other way I want to give you. If, if you want to live like citizens of the kingdom, live like Christ is your king, like heaven is your home, and listen to this one, live like the church is your family. Live like the church is your family. Paul is speaking to the church as a whole. We often forget this. Every time we read the Bible, there's personal application. We need to remember that. But these books were written to a church. 
like to a group of people in which he's saying, listen, get along and love Christ. And it's so different for them because these were all first-generation Christians. Many of them literally left father and mother to join with this group. So they go home for holidays, and everybody thinks they're crazy for following Jesus Christ. They may not be welcomed home for holidays anymore. The church is their place of acceptance. They don't have anything else. Now, for many of us, that's not true. For some of you, it is true. But whether it's true or not, God has called us into a church because the church is a family. Our citizenship is in heaven. And then Ephesians 2.19 says that we are fellow citizens of each other, that we together are citizens of the kingdom. And our relationships in the church are critical to our relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not going to make a case for this because I don't have time But if you want me to make a case at some point, I can. Let me just tell you this. There is an inseparable connection between your relationship with Christ and your relationship with the local church. You cannot have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that is healthy if you are not connected to a local church. Not just because there's all kinds of things the church provides for you that you need, but more than that, because God so designed it that he will not let you thrive spiritually without an active engagement and involvement in a church. This is to take priority. You say, I was thinking about this this morning. I love standing out in the lobby on Sunday mornings and greeting people as they come in. You know, one of the things I love about this church is how multi-generational it is, and God has given us an incredible legacy of older people. I'm not going to define what puts you in the category of older people, but if you're wondering if that's you, it probably is. It's such a blessing. You know, I was joking. We had the college students over at our house the other day, and I was just trying to think of a way we could reach more college students, and I thought we ought to just take a billboard out and put it up on campus, say, miss your grandparents? Come to Prince Avenue Baptist Church. I think it's genius. We could partner up with you, and you can feed them and love on them, and it, it's, it's, one of the greatest, it's one of the greatest things that we've got going as a church. It is one of the greatest things we have going. But you know what I noticed this morning? I noticed, listen, I was just watching as people coming in, and I, one lady comes in with oxygen, her oxygen tank. and Another, la- another man comes in, and he's all bent over, and he comes in his, his walker, and he's moving about this fast. Another comes and they're only able to walk because someone is holding them. And another comes in and they say, well, Pastor, I'm sorry. I've missed the last three weeks. I had surgery and I was in the hospital. But I tell you, as soon as I got out, I got here. And I thought comparing that to a younger generation who will miss church for anything. You know, I was talking to a sweet man this morning. I said, I just just want to thank you for the effort that it takes for you to get here. And he just said this. He said, well, I hope I'm an example to young people. And it is an example. It doesn't take much for people to miss church these days. And what I love about that is is a generation that understands that this right here matters. It really matters. You need a church. The church needs you, and you need a church. And what Paul is saying is if you want to live like a citizen of the kingdom and a life worthy of the gospel, then get connected with a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church and invest in it. Join it. Be a part of it. Because there is no healthy spiritual life without it. And, and you look at living with Christ as your king and heaven as your home and church as your family, and what you realize is this. God is actually calling us to a radically different form of life. This is a, a different type of living. 
We're not being swayed back and forth by the tides of the world, but we are saying, listen, I'm going to be focused on Christ and I'm going to give the church priority. I'm going to make a greater financial and material and personal investment in the kingdom of God. Why? Because you're a Christian. Because God, in his marvelous grace, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to give you life. And in you is the very life of God dying to come out. So just two questions as we close. The first one is this. Are you a citizen of the kingdom? Are you? I'm not asking if you pray to prayer or grow up in church. I'm asking... Have you trusted in Christ alone as the payment for your sins? Have you submitted to Jesus as the Lord of your life? Has there been a time in your life in which you said, Jesus, I believe that you alone are the way and my sins can only be forgiven by trusting you. Here's my life. Take it. It's yours. Here's my life. Let it be fully consecrated to thee. This is my life. Listen, if you've not done that, can I beg you in just a moment when we stand, come, let us talk to one of you. Let us counsel you through what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Let this be the day. The second thing is this. If you are a citizen of the kingdom, are you living like one? Are you living out the reality of this life? How is your involvement in the local church? What investment are you making in eternity? Is Jesus Christ calling the shots? And if there is any one of those ways in which the Lord is convicting you, the time to respond is now, right now. You say, Lord, I'm sorry. I forget. Would you forgive me? And I want to walk more faithfully in your ways. And you just begin right now. You just begin today. I want to plead with you on Christ's behalf so that we might be a unique, distinct, radically different people that you would live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.